Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pantasocracy. And this is your host, Miss Panty Bliss. Hey. You can stop. <laughs> okay, you can calm down. A, because I know you're only doing it because I look amazing, and B, because you were told to. Um, welcome to Pantasocracy, and um, in a way it's meant to be kind of like your ideal dinner party, and we have invited, well, sort of your dream table. There are sort of um, what I call diverse and interesting people doing diverse and interesting things. Um, there's no food here, obviously, at this one. It's more sort of food for thought. Um, but we do have some great treats, so I'm going to introduce them to you. This over here is, um, well, she sounds like an herb, and um, I'm not even going to attempt the full name, but I'm going to give her her brief introduction of Dil Vikramasinghe. Um, she's lived all around the world, of course, um, but now Ireland is home, and she has a very optimistic view of Ireland, which is why I like having her around. Um, beside Dil is um, Eleanor Fitzsimons. Now, Eleanor is... Uh, well, she spent the last few years in bed with Oscar Wilde, pretty much, and one of the only women too, after concerts maybe. Um, and she is the author of a really fantastic um, biography of Wilde uh, called Wilde's Women, which sort of looks at Wilde through the perspective of the women in his life. Um, over here, is, is, uh, he's from Athai, and you can't say that about many people, can you? Um, <laughs> he's often known by an initial, you know, Jack L, but Jack Loopman to us, and um, Jack has his guitar with him, so you may have already worked out that he's going to do some singing for us later. Um, this here is Porrick Dempsey. He's the serious man in the room. He comes to us from the hallowed and esteemed halls of the Royal Irish Academy. And um, among other things that I want to talk to him about is a project that he is doing at the moment called Women on the Walls, but I'll get him to explain a bit more about that later. And then finally, but by no means least, of course, um, the imposing presence. And I'm going to talk to you about that. Everyone always puts the word imposing or formidable beside her name. It's the actor Alwyn Fiore. Um, you can give her a clap. <laughs> you see, it was because I brought up the imposing. It was because I brought up the imposing thing to intimidate her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all, I, I could spend half an hour introducing all of them, so we'll, we'll, we'll sort of come to that later. Um, but actually, now, before we start, I get to take the floor first um, in uh, well, what we're calling the panty monologues, because, well, why wouldn't we? Um, when I was 20 years old, at a party in uh, my brother's flat in London, I met the most exotic and fabulous creature that I had ever laid eyes on. He was a performance artist called Lee Bowery. Now, he was a big man, very tall, voluptuous, fleshily imposing. And by the time I met him, he was already a legendary figure on the club scene. And for a young, gay Irish art student, meeting him was both exciting and revelatory. Because Lee had made a, a sort of name for himself as a living work of art. He was a clubland flesh and blood sculpture, a towering installation of skin and costume that moved with surprising grace through crowded rooms of startled clubbers or puzzled gallery patrons. His astonishing costumes sometimes pushed his very flesh into impossible, unsettling shapes and set a standard for which every club kid with a couple of ping pong balls stuck to his face has been striving for ever since. For Lee Bowery, his body wasn't an end, it was a beginning, a medium of transformation and opportunity. With paint and fabric and movement and performance, he pushed against the boundaries of his own form, his own biology, and transformed himself. Until I met Lee that summer, I had always thought that I was 
in a way fixed or immutable, that I was and always would be the vet's son from a small town in the west of Ireland, that somehow my parameters were already set and my defining characteristics were already defined. But in Lee, I began to see all of these new opportunities or possibilities because he was this doughy kid from the arsehole of Australia. And yet here he was, the startling epicenter of cool London, you know, the most fabulous creature in a scene full of fabulous creatures. And in Lee, I saw the transformation wasn't just possible, it was exciting and maybe even necessary. And for the first time in my life, I realized that I didn't actually have to be defined or confined by where or what I came from. I could define myself. I was the master of my own destiny. You know, life was for creating, not consuming, and convention was for wimps. And I am still interested in this idea of transformation as being both possible and even necessary on an individual level, obviously, um, but also in a wider context. You know, how do you transform, say, a society or a country? What are we and what do we want to be? And just as the caterpillar sheds its chrysalis, what do we want to leave behind when we become who we are truly meant to be? And the first thing I want to just get out of the way is every time I say the word pantisocracy to somebody, they all think I've made it up. They think, oh, she's just bullshitting. But it's a totally real world and a word. And Eleanor Fitzsimons here is the perfect person to support me <laughs> and explain to you what pantisocracy means. So I'm, I'm really glad that you're here. You, you explain to them because yeah. they won't yet. Okay, it's funny actually because I had been writing about the Romantic Poets and two of them in particular, Robert Southey, who was 18 years of age at the time, and Samuel Taylor Coleridge, very famous to us all, obviously, who was 22. And they met in university, became firm friends, but had all these very idealistic notions it was just in the aftermath of the French Revolution, but they were very disillusioned with the way things had gone after such a great start. Um, England had become very corrupt in their mind. There was the Industrial Revolution was on and people were getting wealthier and wealthier at the expense of the poor. And they just felt very disgruntled. So they decided to set up a new society in America, the New World, which had been untainted by all of, of this horror. And the idea was that 12 men would go over with their wives and families and set up a settlement on the banks of the river in Pennsylvania. And everything would be shared. The idea of pantisocracy comes from pan socratia which is Greek and that's equal rule nobody in charge and everybody in charge and they had another notion which was sharing of wealth and sharing of resources so if you grew crops they were everybody's and so on um, now unfortunately money became a bit of an issue Southie had a very wealthy aunt and she was going to fund the whole project but she found out that he was planning to marry a seamstress Edith Fricker <laughs> and she was horrified by this and then she found out he was going to America which was even worse so she threw him out in the middle of a rainstorm and he had no money and he couldn't fund the project. So they tried to involve people who were a bit more wealthy, but that was difficult to do because the sharing would have been very much in one direction, I suppose, <laughs> uh, with the wealth flowing down. But... Um, they, they started to kind of pare back their ideas then and they thought about maybe doing something in Wales and then Southie talked about maybe bringing servants to make things a little easier because all of this farm labouring didn't sound so attractive anymore. Um, Coleridge hung on to the idea well, for years Well, how are they going to have years. servants in a society well, of equals? Indeed. That's, I think, when things started to kind of fall yeah. apart and the wheels came off a bit. So it was becoming less and less equal all the time. Yeah. Communal land went out the window. They were now going to have their own land and they might have a little field somewhere that was communal. So it all began to just fall apart unfortunately because it had been a lovely idea and, and very much formed with the, with the right intentions and the best intentions but it never happened like most lovely notions <laughs> um, Jack you have a sort of a connection to the romantics as well 
your first band is called the Black Romantics, right? Yeah, the Black Romantics was the band I played with back in the Dark Club back in mid nineties. Yeah, it would have been the Dark Club. The Dark Club. Yeah, it's it's one of those uh, legendary places that only we used to go on stage at twelve o'clock. They would toll a bell and uh, it just went all night long. You know, I think that was a special time in Dublin. Temple Bar was still a a bohemian Mm. kind of place. You know, but doesn't everybody look back and think that their time was special? I think it was. I think it was. You know, (laughs) it's 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 more industrialized now. I think the whole thing. But yeah, the Black Romantics, great band. Yeah. Well, well, one of the things that I'm interested in talking about is the sort of the idea of Irishness that when and when you sort of leave Ireland and look back at it, that you maybe get a clearer picture of what Ireland is and, and maybe the things that you would like to change about it. Then somehow, you know, a, a perspective from afar is a clearer one. Mm-hmm. And you, you spend a lot of time in the US at the moment. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about Ireland when you're there? Well, I mean, I think we don't know how good we have it here with the amount of space we have, the small population we have. Everybody in Ireland, somebody knows somebody who knows somebody. Whereas you go to LA, where I was just hanging out, you're anonymous, you know, everybody's anonymous. So you lose that. So we don't know how lucky we are that we have that, which annoys people too, that somebody knows somebody who knows somebody. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, it's it's a nice thing, you know, it's it's a very large family in some respect. Which well, has its good things and its bad. It, well, the, one of the great things about that is that everyone here is approachable. You know, there's, there's a way to speak well, to everybody. You can even thing, walk up to the Taoiseach here and the, shake his the hand. The one thing you always get is people say Irish people are friendly, which, mm. uh, you know, when you live here, you forget that too. But it seems we do talk more to people. Yeah. And that's uh, an alien thing to a lot of other countries. Mm. Um, I go to other countries and I find people are incredibly friendly and you bring them back to your house and all that. In Ireland, I think there's a, there's a distance. We're, we're friendly, a surface. Uh, I think yeah. sometimes. Well, we're all working for board fault, yeah. I think, at the back of it all. There's that thing that clicks in. Get them to come to Well, I agree. Room. There's that thing you walk into the pub and Irish people are like, oh, you're your best friend. You know, when an American, that happens to an American, they'll invite you to their home. But an Irish, Irish person would be horrified at the idea. <laughs> I don't even know you. I just, you know, whatever. Um, Dill, you, of course, have a particular perspective because, you know, you didn't grow up here. In some ways, you grew up in a culture that's entirely foreign to, to Ireland and, and then came here. But, but one of the things that I love about hanging out with you is how positive you are about uh, Ireland. Ireland, for me, is the, the best country to live in in the world. And, and I was born in Italy, so it, it's an it's educated choice. I, I was born there, born in Italy, lived there till the age of 12, then lived in Sri Lanka for about 10 years and lived in Bahrain for five years and now I'm in Ireland 16 years so hence and, and I worked as a flight attendant for five years so I've traveled the world so for me compared to any other country Ireland is you know I think the pe- and I often ask myself what is it about Ireland that makes it such a great country because I'm just back from um, going back to Sri Lanka um, uh, after 12 years uh, and it, it really you hadn't been back at all hadn't been years. back to Sri Lanka I hadn't seen my, my mother in 12 years I'm going to try and not cry you know, because he's 82. Um, but the the relief that I felt when we landed back in Dublin, and there was Amory and myself and my 14-month-old son, the fact that being in a country where our marriage is recognized, mm. that is incredible. You know, and to, to know that the, the state and the people voted for that is incredible. So I think Ireland is a country, you know, they talk about the American dream. I think there's an Irish dream where if you come to this country and you work hard and you're good at what you do, the sky's the limit. Do you honestly think that? I really believe that because there is, you know, we're always striving for equality in Ireland, but I think there is a sense of fairness in Irish people. We like people who live in Ireland to feel 
that they've been treated fairly. And, yeah. I, and I think we are doing the legwork now with all the laws and all that. But I genuinely f- believe no matter who you are, w- what you do, if you're good at what you do and you work hard, you're a grafter at yeah. what you do, people will respect you for it and support you for it. Well, I also think we like a chancer in this country. You know, <laughs> we have this grudging respect for chancer. Um, Owen, in some ways, and you can tell me if I'm totally off the mark here, you maybe have always had some of the outsider perspective because, of course, you were born here, but you were born to French Breton parents. So, in a sense, you grew up with people who had an outside perspective already. Yes, absolutely. And not only that, but it was, uh, I grew up way out on the west coast of Ireland in this little peninsula that juts out into the Atlantic. And there were very few foreigners in, in Ireland at the time. So, um, I think it was like a little country unto itself. Mm being in our house and speaking French and outside uh, English was being spoken. And I think that um, for most of my childhood, I was really trying to, uh, and actually into my teens and even now, trying to assimilate. But I do think that's true that the outside perspective does give you a different view on a country or uh, or a community because even when I get a bit frustrated in Ireland at times uh, you know just just certain things that frustrate you you start to feel it's a little bit small and and then when I go and work in America or elsewhere I start to realize how much people envy the kind of artistic community that we have Mm. here and the sort of crossover between all the disciplines and the fact that it is that small and the other amazing thing is the amount of artists this country has produced over the decades and centuries I think that's kind of extraordinary I don't know what you call it like a geopolitical space or whatever it is but I find that kind of very exciting so I think we do have it better than we think we have it Um, When I was introducing you, I I said the word imposing, and it it strikes me whenever I look at anything about you, almost always one of those words is involved, imposing or formidable. I mean, obviously, you're a beautiful woman and a striking woman. Do you find that those terms are attached to you often, and why do you think that is? Well, I don't really. I mean, I I was doing an interview with John Kelly and he said something about when we see you coming on stage, we kind of go, oh, here she comes. And I said, (laughs) he said, are you aware of that? And I said, no, not at all. But I'm kind of, I I guess I'm glad that people feel like that, you know, uh, because you sort of feel, oh, well, that means, you know, that you're claiming some kind of space there. But uh, I never think of that. I never think of myself as imposing. Well, you know, because the thing is yeah. that, of course, in person, you're totally not. But that is the, the sort of the image that some people have of you. Now, and I suspect it has something to do with you being a woman in charge of your own destiny, in a sense. But you set up emergency room, which is this, was essentially your way of saying, I'm only going to do the things that I want to do. And you are going to be your own boss. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's it sort of wasn't a thought out thing. It's a sort of a, a thing of necessity. And I think even when I was starting off uh, as a performer in the mid 70s, I already knew that there was this other space that I had to carve where nothing of the kind of work that was going on was going to uh, interrogate that space that I wanted Mm -hmm. to inhabit and explore. So I've always had that pull to that other space. So it it is taking control, but it's also just there's a sort of an inevitability and you can't turn away from it. It's a bit like love, you know, the only love I believe in isn't the no choice kind of love. (laughs) (laughs) The best kind. Yeah. I, I'm sort of interested in this thing about, about women. And, of course, Eleanor, your um, biography of Wilde yes. is told through the prism of the women in, in his Absolutely, life. Yeah. Which is not something I think we generally think of when we're thinking about... I mean, obviously, we, we yeah. connect them to Constance and, and so on. 
like for example his mother was a formidable Absolutely. woman wonderful yes. woman yes. yeah it's quite extraordinary really that it had never been done before and mm. it's funny when I suggested the idea um, the reaction was for goodness sake you can't write about wild everything's been said and recent books actually if you look at them are focusing in on a narrower and narrower way on tiny aspects of his life maybe a six week, six week holiday somewhere but I said no I want to broaden it all out again look at his whole life from start to finish and even before it's start and look at the women um, I had an advantage I think being Irish because I think for us Jane Wilde is still very much um, a towering figure. You know, we know of her. We know she was a poet. We know she was a revolutionary. Uh, we're very aware of her. So you have to know at some level that a man who had a mother like that must have had a very special relationship with women and a very special attitude towards women. And absolutely that held through. Um, she was an intellectual, first and foremost. She was a very intelligent woman, uh, campaigned all her life for women to be allowed access education, but never had an education herself because it just wasn't on offer. Mm. She simply wasn't allowed. So she taught herself, she taught herself to speak 10 languages. She worked as a translator, a very, very accomplished and well-regarded translator of major European works. Um, so her name would have been very much in intellectual circles as well as this flamboyant woman, I suppose we think yeah. of, and this poet. Um, and through her really wild, realised that women were accomplished and intelligent and capable. The, the and other th thing that I think is sort of interesting about how we, we look at wild is this prism of Irishness. Because yes, we take him as one of our own and mm. we're, we're proud of that. And we have, you know, the statue in Marion Square and we always want to remind foreigners, oh, he's Irish. But in another way, we don't, or at least not in the mm -hmm. same way as Joyce or whatever. We don't really think of him as a Dubliner, you know, for example. Yeah. And, you know, people don't think, oh, well, he grew up on Marion Square and he went to Trinity and, you know, yes. Constance grew up around the corner from him. And, you know, you know we don't see him... In, in that sort of rooted in mm. Ireland way. I, I mean, possibly because of how his career went. But Well, I think largely because he didn't see himself in that way. And mm. he said that, he's documented as saying that he was a citizen of the world. There mm. wasn't a parochial bone in his body. Yeah. He really did see himself as somebody who happened to be born in Dublin. He was very steeped in Irish culture. His Both his parents <laughs> collected folklore and he was very aware of, of the absolute deep-rooted culture in Ireland. But he was a citizen of the world and he took mm. his ideas from everywhere. The world. He always, to me, he always celebrated otherness. It was yes. always yes. about mm. celebrating otherness. Absolutely. Everything mm. right down to his, the way he dressed yeah. and everything. And that's what's glorious about him. Absolutely. And embraced and, and mm. sought out otherness. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and that's also why so many people can latch on to different aspects. Mm. Of, of course, him, there's you know. something in him for everybody. Yeah. Mm. Is, that, is that a characteristic of the Irish? When the Irish go abroad, obviously, uh, yeah. you know, generations and generations mm -hmm. have gone abroad, uh, are used to going abroad and are used to assimilating themselves uh, into society. Mm. Uh, I did a, a series a number of years ago called The Irish Mind, and we interviewed a lot of Irish people who had made it abroad, be they in business or science or, or, or whatever. And they all said two things. Uh, one was that the Irish were self-deprecating. They went over into societies. They weren't threatening. They put themselves down a little bit, mm -hmm. but th that, that helped them assimilate. Uh, so I think, you know, you, you, you talk about Wilde and how Wilde fitted in or, or Beckett fitted into France. Mm -hmm. You see that, that assimilation. And I think that might be one of those characteristics yeah. uh, of, of the Irish. pragmatism, I suppose. You know, you mm. fit in where you make your living and yeah. you have to fit in to a certain extent. Dil, you're, you know, obviously, you're, you're a dark-skinned lesbian. You know, you have all the things. <laughs> do you ever feel like your, you know, qualifications to be Irish are, are called into question? Or do you feel people are, you know... Because that's one of the things that I always felt that my, you know, qualifications to be Irish were always being called into question. You know, you, know you were queer and I had a funny accent yeah. and, you know, and I, I didn't like football. You know, all of these things. I constantly always felt that my Irishness was being questioned. Yeah. And that's something that followed me for a long time. And it used to really annoy me. You know, people say, where are you from? And I would say, oh, I'm from Mayo. And they'd sort of give you this look. Um, 
you know, do you get the look? All the time. And even actually on, on, on my program on, uh, on News Talk, you know, uh, people will accept, are easier to accept a, a migrant if we don't ask questions. Uh, if you don't challenge the status quo, as in, yeah, come in, no, no worries, you know, just do your job, but just don't uh, give out about this country or have an opinion about this yeah. country. So when I, I get questioned a lot about my Irishness when I'm very vocal about the things I like to see change in this yeah. country. Like, absolutely, I, my love for this country is unquestionable, but it's not unquestioning. And I yes. think we need, to, we need to do that. But, but also, <laughs> you know, conversations with taxi drivers. I always get this all the time. So I get into the taxi. You know, I, my bum hasn't touched the seat yet. So where are you from? You know, so I'm like, and I started saying, I'm Irish. Now, really, where are you from? You know, and I'm like, oh, here we go. So I tell him the whole story, blah, blah, blah. Now in Ireland, 16 years, I'm a proud Irish citizen. And then they're like, oh, so you're, you have an Irish passport. And what do you have to do to do that? You know, did you have to pay something? Did you have to do a test? And I'm like, well, look, it took 10 years. And I had to give in everything, including my kitchen sink, practically, as, as far as documentation goes, you know. And um, this one tax driver kept asking me, but don't you miss your country? Don't you miss your food? Don't don't you miss your family? And I'm like, well, everything I care about is right here. And when it comes to food, I actually like Irish food. And he was like, what Irish food? I was like, now, this is the kicker. This is the thing that I think, because he was really suspicious about me. But when I told him that I love Dublin coddle, well, the man nearly, you know, he nearly jumped out of his skin. He actually said, he said to me, do you know that I actually broke up with a woman once because she didn't like my Dublin coddle? Yeah. <laughs> so suddenly, it wasn't the fact that I was an Irish citizen. It was the fact that we shared our, the love for Dublin coddle. And he wouldn't let me take uh, pay for the fare. Because <laughs> now he saw me as one of his own. So there you go. Love Dublin coddle and the Irish <laughs> Well, taxi drivers are a prison through which everything is clarified. <laughs> every time I get into a taxi, you know, when I'm in my where um, you know they always say asking immediately it's a question about football because that's how you know straight guys communicate with each other right and then <laughs> and I'm always like oh god because I have just zero interest but then I'm always like afraid that you know if I just if I start saying well I have no interest in football then there's always this slight sort of tension because the taxi driver's thinking oh I've got a queer in the back you know what I mean so, so you know it, it sort of bothers me you know I always say to them listen I don't jump into the cab and ask you about Dolly Parton's latest single because I don't think that everybody with the same genitalia as me is going to have the same interest you know what I mean <laughs> but um, I want to come to you, Porik, here, because we were talking sort of about women. And then um, you have this project called Women on the Walls. You know, you're, he's not crucifying them or anything. I mean, <laughs> maybe you should explain. We've all had the experience of uh, you go into a public building or a, a corporate headquarters or a university, and the only paintings, the only pictures on the wall tend to be elderly men looking down at you. Well, in, in an environment like that, in the academy, I work for the Royal Irish Academy, and, and uh, we've got a, a lovely building on, on Dawson Street, and there's lots of portraits of, of, of 19th century men. If you want to be inclusive, if you want to encourage women and into the sciences, you need to do something uh, purposeful about that. And so somebody from Accenture came into the academy and she looked around the walls and she said, you've no women on the walls here. And so uh, that was the germ of an idea. And the idea was that we are going to take down some of the paintings of the men we have on the walls and put up paintings of, of women. So this year we've commissioned five portraits of women. So we're, we've got four portraits of the first women who were elected members of the academy in 1949. So the academy has been around since 1785, but the first women were elected only in 1949. And then we're doing a group portrait of eight contemporary young scientists because the academy is about creating role models and we want to send that message
message out. Here are young women who are doing extraordinary science in Ireland and they can be role models and inspiring people. And uh, so that's what Women in Walls is about. And we, we hope it becomes a movement because this is the same issue no matter where you go in the world. So uh, we're starting now. We hope to unveil the paintings uh, in December and we're going to have a Women on Walls Day. And so, uh, yeah, that's the idea. In a way, I think, you know, just simply by painting these women, you're almost um, bringing them into the establishment. Exactly, yeah. If you go to any gallery, the people who get portraits painted of them are always the establishment figures. Female leaders don't get their portraits painted, and we want to make female leaders visible. That's the purpose of Women Walls. So, yeah, we're taking those women whose stories aren't well known, and we're making those stories uh, better known. Oh, and I'm seeing you've had your portrait painted. Well, actually, I was just, th- it was making me laugh. I was just thinking um, a couple of times, but mainly photographic portraits. Yeah. And um, Kevin Abosh took a portrait of me, which was one of those that was hanging up in the airport for oh, yes, three or yes, four yes, years. Yes, I remember, yeah. And um, the National Gallery bought it oh. along with a portrait of Bob Geldof and a portrait of Brian O'Driscoll. And, um, and it's quite the collection there. Yes. Right? Yeah, got some dinner party. And then they had this sort of mini exhibition where they were showing uh, the the recent addition to the portrait collection. So there were those three photographs. I was in the middle with Brian O'Driscoll on one side and um, and Bob Geldof on the other. And there was other paintings and other portraits around the wall, all of men. One which had been painted by a woman. I, was, I went in there sort of incognito and I was looking to see, well, God, this is really weird to see myself up there. And, um, and I heard these two guys behind me saying, who's your one? <laughs> <laughs> Did you answer? No, I didn't. <laughs> um, I actually want to come back to the Waking the Feminists thing, but actually let's have some, some music because we have, have Jack standing here. Um, Jack, you're going to do a song for us called Open Your Borders. Mm-hmm. And tell us a little bit about that because it's, it has a little... For me, when I sing it, it's about the borders in your head, mm-hmm. you know, in a theater, they talk about the fourth wall, breaking yeah. the wall between you and the audience. But I believe in the fifth wall, which is the wall inside people's heads that you're trying to crack open as well with new ideas. And it's about being open minded, really. Mm-hmm. It's also a love song and it's also a political song. Because, yeah, it, it, you know, the title now has such a, a resonance to what's, you know, to the, what's going on in the world. It's always been going on, immigration yeah. and people. So it was, the, the initial idea was, I think, something I saw on TV where I saw mm. thought, well, why, you know, why is it so complicated? And when you sing it in the US now? Uh, well, yeah, I always say that it's, uh, it's in a parallel universe, it's Donald Trump's uh, <laughs> campaign, <laughs> campaign song. <laughs> <laughs> Which, which it is. Yeah. <laughs> so um, let's have some music from Jack Lukeman. Let me in. I 
our battlements Open your borders Just give the order Open your borders Cause love must win yeah. Won't you let me Summer days grow longer Life gets shorter Hearts start growing cold If you remain alone You gotta take that chance You gotta get up and dance Come on, you know the song So Jack, one thing I wanted to ask you about, because it's something that I feel a connection to, um, you know, when you were sort of Jack Ale rather than Jack Lukeman, you know, you, there was a sort of a, a transformative process as a performer. You, 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 were, you wore makeup and, and all of that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, why was that important to you, do you think? It's just, you know, different phases you go through, mm. different envelopes you want to push. You know, for me, the, the entertainer, the performer is the person who does yeah. whatever comes to mind or feels natural or so yeah i've had a lot of fun over the years you yeah know, in various uh, outfits and, yes, you see... know i used to you know wear a lot of pvc yeah red anything whatever but uh i suppose there, there was a point where people were writing about my trousers more than they were writing about <laughs> my music so i thought no it didn't i mean i still Don the old feather boa now and then. Yeah. <laughs> I do like an old top hat every now and then. But uh, to me, the world is becoming more homogenized. And uh, growing up in a thigh, I, I, I wasn't even a w really aware of trends. It was whatever you could get your hands on and then you made something mm. out of it. So it wasn't as driven by uh, labels and yeah. all those things, which I think now it's we I think we have a generation that's been raised by marketing men pushing mm. this upon people where individuality needs to be embraced yeah. and uh, well because one of the things that I'm always you know having to answer questions about is you know why the hell I dress up you know in drag and all that 
And Why what not? I'm always trying to say to people is that for me personally, and I'm not talking on behalf of all cross-dressing performers, um, for me personally, I am not trying to impersonate a woman. You know, like, I don't think that anybody here is going to mistake me for, you know, a real, in inverted commas, woman. You know, that, that's not what I'm about. What I always say is what I'm doing is I'm using the tools of femininity, or what I call the tools of peacockery. Because mm -hmm. we decided, you know, that our culture would let women wear the makeup and the colors and the you know, face paint and, you know, uh -huh. the corsetry and all that. And I just kind of feel like women are more visually interesting because of that. Mm -hmm. Now, it's a sort of a two-sided thing because I think using all of those tools can be really fun, but they're also time-consuming and uncomfortable and sometimes bloody painful. As I always say, look at me, I'm so glamorous, I'm practically disabled. You know? And, and then... Yeah, the, the, but the flip side of that, you know, is, of course, that if a woman, you know, in our culture sometimes decides that she doesn't want to have to bother with all of that... That's right, like me! The, yeah, exactly! <laughs> Well, then sometimes I think, you know, the culture looks at them with suspicion, you know, like they think she's just lazy or slovenly or lesbian, you know, and probably all four. You know, so it's a, it's a funny thing. But I think that's why even a lot of heterosexual male performers end up in some way feminizing their appearance in order to just be more interesting. Well, I don't know if that was the reason why, but uh, I don't know. I play I'm a lot. pushing I, that reason I, on no, you. But I, play, I, I do play a lot of characters. A yeah. lot of stuff I do is very character-driven. Um, so I would have just, you know, went with the characters and uh, mm. as much as anything else. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all about um, fun. And, I, you, know, it's, you know, I, I enjoy the dressing up part of it, you know. Mm -hmm. But I also think that if I didn't have this outlet, I'd probably be a super flamboyant boy dresser, you know, which I'm not, because I think I have this outlet. And, uh -huh. but, but of course, performers, dressing up is part of it. I mean, so, you know, all when you have to, your, whatever the job is, you're dressing up for it. Is that a part of it that you like or, or resist? It, it depends very much on the role and what I'm doing. Like, there's some, some roles which demand that absolute external transformation, an hour and a half of wigs and makeup and particular clothes and all that kind of stuff. But sometimes also that stuff can get in the way as well. So I kind of think it, it is always about transformation, but sometimes it's and more and more for me, actually, I think it's about an internal and external transformation. You have a great them. quote, which I've written down because I'm going to steal it at some right. point. And <laughs> you said uh, that really performing really is a fundamental transformation of consciousness, an act of disturbance against the prescribed reality mm -hmm. we live in. Yeah, I do really think about it like a, a, an act of resistance or, you know, an act of transformation. And it's a necessary space for me. And like the subtitle of the emergency room is the emergency room brackets a necessary space for projects in need of immediate attention. But it's like <laughs> these things that are demanding mm. to be uh, given space and life to. Um, but I do think of it, it's almost like a container, you know, very womb-like, I suppose you could think of it. But it's like something that is pushing its borders out and out and sort of making you know creating a much fluid sort of reality um and and it's it's got to be very inclusive in a live situation it's very mm. uh, very inclusive of the audience it's but i'm interested in this idea of transformation you know from a different angles because obviously for a performer you know that's what it's all coming to but i think in everybody's life like for example in mine when i met lee bowery and that was a, a nice you know sort of transformation but it was a nice shock to the system but sometimes i think transformation is spurred by less pleasant shocks to the system and eleanor i think in some ways you ha you can speak to that because you suffered greatly after your first child yes with you know postnatal depression i did and indeed actually yes um 
Gosh, it, it was such a difficult time in my life. I was living in London, having a fantastic time with my husband mm. of, of many years. Actually, we were married seven years. And we were just having the most wonderful time and having all of these new experiences. And I very much wanted to have a child and became pregnant and had a child. And then my world collapsed in mm. around me, really. I just, I suppose I always equated to, it's as if you were doing a job like, I don't know, flying a plane and somebody scooped you out and said, go now and do some brain surgery. And you just yeah. had a clue and you just felt like such a failure and nobody was really there to support you or to talk you through it. You're just expected to get on with it. And I was a complete failure in my mind as a mother. I was living in an apartment where the four walls were closing in on me. I'd lost all the people that I knew because they were all work people because I mm. wasn't in my own country. My family weren't there. And I just looked at this tiny helpless child and thought, I, I can't do this, I've no idea. And I descended into this really dark place, actually. I, anxiety as much as it was depression, really. Yeah. Um, depression I always kind of think of as, you know, you just can't get up in the morning or whatever, you know, that very dark sort of feeling. But this was just terrible fear all the time you know mm. this, this awful anxiety I couldn't eat I lost tons of weight I was crying all the time and it went undiagnosed for such a long time for, for more than six months which it should have been picked up it should have yeah. been picked up by the system there were nurses calling to my home and, and checking that the child was all right but yeah. they sort of weren't quite looking at me and uh, it eventually came to a head it was diagnosed and I went back to, to Dublin just immediately um mm flew back that I couldn't be alone anymore and um, my mother came over I flew back within two weeks mm. and my husband gave up his job his great job that he'd been so happy to get and came back after me and we just slowly be rebuilt things from there mm. that was 15 years ago now but um it was a shocking experience yeah. it really was and I just don't think there's enough talk about that mm. people yeah. it's something that you suffer very much in isolation and because you feel like such a failure you're not inclined to talk mm. about it yeah but the one thing that I did when I got back here is I found this support group that was run out of Hull Street at the time. I'm not even sure if it still is. And there were about maybe five or six women and we all told each other stories and just the relief of knowing that there are other people out there yeah. that had the same thoughts and feelings and emotions was so important. But there just aren't enough of those groups. Mm. Just and, aren't enough. And did mm. this for me is one of the prescribed realities we're talking about. Yeah. You know, this idea that uh, it's, you know, you have a child and you're a mother and everybody wants to be a mother and, you know, it's going to be all glorious and everything like that. There's no questioning of what it really means in your life. Skills. And, mm. you know... There are already too many people in the world. Why should we actually naturally be mothers? You know, and yeah. I, I think the human being is actually evolving to a, a different place in terms of yeah. this whole idea about reproduction. But I think that sort of isolation and that, that kind of devastation mm -hmm. comes from this expectation that this is something that is natural for everybody. Yeah. But it's not. Mm. It's not but, but there's so much you can do now. Because yeah. when I like when I had Phoenix uh, last year, I was expecting postnatal depression mm. because I've I've mm. experienced mental health issues all my life. So I knew it's going to come. So I am going to be prepared for it. I'm going to have my therapist on speed dial. You know, <laughs> I am going to see her before the birth, and I, I schedule and I got myself into therapy even if I was feeling no everything is fine because I knew yeah. it was going to hit. And I, thank goodness now there is because because. People like you have spoken about it. Mm -hmm. You know, now there is a, a, an awareness that you know everything in your life will change, no matter how prepared oh, you are, everything. no matter how everything. how mm -hmm. wonderful your family around you and your friends around you. But still, you your whole identity goes. Yeah. Everything yeah. goes. Exactly. It has to be rebuilt. But yeah, I did what you did on my second child, and uh, I was fully prepared. I booked the sessions with the the psychiatrist. Never happened. Never happened. Yeah. You know, so that's why because you prepared. <laughs> but Eleanor, you know. Um, I'm not suggesting for a moment, you know, you're happy that that happened in your life. But, but do you feel in some way that once you're through that, that it somehow transformed you or your view of the world or, or how you interact with the world? 
And is that change now something yes. you see as a positive um, or a negative? Because of our circumstances in life, I often think that women are given opportunities to reinvent themselves, you mm. know, because you're expected to have your life punctuated by things like pregnancy and, and childbirth and all the rest of it. And you can see that as a very positive thing. I mean, I was working in the market research industry. I had been for years. I had business degrees. I had this very sort of corporate life. That all went from under me. I could never go back to that. Yeah. But now I'm writing. I'm writing biographies. I've just signed a, a contract for my second one. I never would have done that have mm. I, had I not had a child. I yeah. probably still would be heading into the office in my suit and standing yeah. Up reading at market share statistics to people, you know, I mean, yeah. it's a pretty harsh way of doing it, but it's a great way of reinventing yourself if everything just disappears out from you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's also one of those things that sometimes I think when you, when there's a big shock, isn't that people mm. expect you to take sort of grand things from it. Like, you know, in my own life, for example, when I was diagnosed with HIV in the mid-90s when it was a death sentence, you know, people, I think, wanted me to be fully sort of transformed somehow, you know, oh, you, you, this, this awful thing happened to you. And, and I always say, well, yeah, but you still have to do the washing. Yeah. You know, you still have to, you know, the dishes are still there. Somebody still has to buy milk. So in some ways, you just sort of plod miserably through it in a way. But, but mm. I do think that afterwards, looking back from, a, from quite a perspective, that that it was almost a positive thing because I, I, I got a strength or a different perspective mm-hmm. out of it, which I wouldn't want to give up. When, when I was 17, I yeah. speak about this often, but my parents threw me out of the family home when they found out I was gay. And for, yeah, I, was, I was homeless and, and for decades I was so angry and so bitter. Whenever I came across someone who had a happy family, who loved their mom and dad, I'd be like, oh, why is it that my family rejected me? But now, this, this journey that I've, I've just come back uh, after you know, seeing my parents after 12 years, you know, now looking back, it's like the best thing that ever happened was for them to throw me out of town <laughs> because it got me as far away as possible from them because they were Jehovah's Witnesses, you know? So I, I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't have become this person that I am today. You know, I wouldn't have embraced my sexuality. I wouldn't have come to Ireland. I wouldn't have met Anne-Marie. I wouldn't have had Phoenix. So now looking back, those three years where I was, you know, couch surfing and really not knowing where my next meal was going to be coming from, that was the best thing that ever happened to me. So, of course, when I was in, in it, I thought, God, this is the worst thing that could happen to anyone. But now I'm thinking, thank God, thank all the, all the universe and everything, because that was the best thing. Going back to childbirth, I mean, I had two babies, myself and David had two babies who died, um, one two days after she was born and another in the womb. And that was another kind of big watershed in, in our lives and in my life. But it becomes part of your life and you it's a gift in a way you know it becomes a gift because we go to visit their grave and we look at them and we 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 have a laugh like i say god they're lovely and quiet so they're no trouble (laughs) (laughs) and there's no way i could have this life if i had those children now and i have to face that Mm. there are big questions though to be sort of having to think about yeah 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 but, but, you know, you're made to question them when mm. things like that happen. Mm. Or, you know, you're getting thrown out of your family home and realizing that, you know, there's no way that you would be living this life now. But, but I love, you know, I, I spoke to your husband yeah, yeah. and I remember asking whether he had any children. Mm-hmm. And he said, we actually have so many living and two died. You know, I, I remember thinking, I've never met anyone who, in, in, when asked if they're children, they actually include yeah. the fact that they had mm. ch- children that were sadly uh, mm-hmm. lost you know and i think we had such an amazing conversation yeah, yeah, on that yeah. and i think we need to t- talk more about that because you know i i need had twins mm-hmm. and at, at 18 weeks i started bleeding and then we found out that there was a there was a, a second empty sack and it, mm-hmm. and when a woman loses a a, a, a baby like that it there's often 
silenced, you know, because there's mm. so much shame mm. and so much isolation. Mm. But when you talk about it, and you gave, you know, when you're open about you know, the mm. fact that you lost two children like that, people will talk about it. So mm. it's about mm. being open. Oh, yeah, no, it's important because it's a huge thing for, for anybody to, to, to have to experience, I think, you know. And men, just as much as the women, and that's they often get left out of this, actually. Yeah. You yes. know, people are coming yeah. up to me saying, oh, you know, or coming up to David saying, how's Alwyn? And I was saying, why aren't they asking you how yeah. you are? <laughs> and you're working at the moment on a show, which is going to be in the Dublin Theatre Festival called Death at Intervals. Yes. Do you want to give us a little bit? Uh, oh, it's fascinating. It's, it's based on a novel by José Saramago, Portuguese writer, who I didn't know at all. And the frame of the story is that death feels unappreciated. So she decides to go on strike in this particular country. And of course, everybody's thinking, oh, this is fantastic. But then all hell breaks loose. You know, society breaks down. Everything goes wrong. The hospitals become full. And, and then people start smuggling their elderly parents over the border so that they can die across the border. <laughs> and all of this kind of thing. <laughs> that is also the plot of an episode of Family Guy. But there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Her death takes a break. <laughs> so, so I don't know who's stealing from who here, Jose. But, <laughs> that's great. I think actually death is something that we do very well in Ireland. Yes, I agree. I always say that. Yeah. Like I English people don't know how to do death at all. No, and I can't. I, I think the process and the transition we have is uh, is excellent. Uh, whereas in England, I can't imagine waiting. Like uh, my father died when I was seventeen, and then there was more of the tradition of. The, of the removal and the funeral and then the days after and the month's mind and all that kind of stuff and it's a wonderful transition yeah. the idea of being in England where somebody dies and they might be buried you know ten days later Three yeah, weeks two weeks yeah. even yeah so you're living with, with that grief yeah, yeah. whereas there's something nice about the process yeah. that we have and then people gathering and it's that kind of public acknowledgement yeah. we want to acknowledge um, you know your loss and your sorrow and and, and, yeah. that. and there's something very touching that is one thing I think we do very well you know yeah. I totally agree with that um, and uh, to use the English example, there's a thing like English friends of mine, you know, they say to me, oh, no, no, I wouldn't want to go to the funeral. I yeah. wouldn't want to intrude. I'm like, intruding? You know, you know, as many people as possible, you know, you go in an army or driving from all around yeah. the country to go because, yeah. you, you know, you met him once at a thing or whatever. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, this is going to be a slight jump. Um, you know, this whole idea of transformation and a shock to the system and, and all that, you know, that I think in somehow spurs changes you know, in, in individuals. Do you think that that is something that societies need to do. I mean, we're here, of course, commemorating 1916 and all that, and in some ways that was a shock to the system that did end up transforming this country in lots of ways. Well, when you look at 1916, that was all about reimagining a future. You know, these people wanted to imagine a different future for them. And I think so far for this, the 100th anniversary, we've looked at, we've remembered and uh, we've reflected on. But the third part of that is reimagine our future. And I think this is a great opportunity in which to do, uh, to do that. I don't think we're doing that. So we've gone through, we're in the, you know, we're in the seventh or eighth month at the moment. Uh, we should now be saying, what sort of future do we want in, mm. this, in, in this country? The, the, the leaders of 1916 had their had their idea. What's our idea? And that's what we should be focusing yeah. on now. And, and I hope led, that happens. It was led by culture. I mean, it was the yeah. culture. It was cultural leaders. That's yeah. I think you know, yeah. big responsibility for us all. A cultural revolution. Fancy <laughs> yeah, <cultural laughs> <Panty> for president. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but do you think that there needs to be a dropping away of things? You know, sometimes I think we think of you know these revolutions and things as sort of all about positive change. But in some ways, there are things that have to be let go of. And, and do you think that that's like a conversation that 
as a society we need to have. What are we keeping and what are we getting rid of? Absolutely, that's what you have to do. I've always, it's always surprised me that orange parades, like when, when do you stop having an orange parade? Uh, mm. You know, when, when does that stop being relevant? And I suppose that's the point. When does it stop being relevant? When do people stop needing something? So yeah, we, we do, we have to do that. I, I think it's, it's, it's a time to take stock and it's a time mm-hmm. to say, what do we want to keep? What do we want yeah. to, and, and how we want to evolve? I had this notion of, you know, looking back at the, at the 100 years, what have we done well? What have we done badly? Mm-hmm. And, and what do we want to do differently for the future? Yeah. You know, that old uh, business thing of a SWOT analysis, looking at your strengths, weaknesses, your opportunities and chance. What have we done in the 100 yeah. years that we're proud of and what we want to, what to, to, to keep for the future? And for, you know, from my background in, in education, education is the one thing that can transform society mm-hmm. more so than anything else and it's at this time that education isn't getting the funding and I'm talking about education across the board I'm talking about preschool primary after education people should be education should be for life it should be something mm-hmm. that people can come to at every stage in their life and if there's one thing that can transform society and give people the freedom and options it's education mm-hmm. It's funny because I think, you know, we're in a period of flux and, and change here and um, maybe the whole world as it feels like at a time. But um, one of the things that I'm sort of thrilled about in the whole marriage equality campaign and everything is that it seems to have spurred on or inspired or reinvigorated other changes or other campaigns for different changes. I mean, obviously, one of the ones is the Waking the Feminists, which I, I honestly, you know, I, I've never asked Leanne Bell this, but I honestly suspect... It might never have happened if, because it had happened just after the Yes Equality campaign. I think, I think Leanne was maybe inspired by that. And uh, you've been a big supporter of the Waking the Feminists. Yes, when? yes, I was. And I mean, you know, like a lot of feminists, I'm not mad about the actual term feminist because it, it sort of in itself, it sort of seems to imply a lack of inclusiveness. But it is absolutely about equality. So I've never really kind of worn the badges because I'm not mad about the word but I was a big supporter and I still am and uh, I think Leanne Bell was uh, it was just so wonderful that she put herself out there as this this catalyst for change mm. and and also the fact that um, the Waking the Feminist thing happened in, in this particular year I really enjoy that so I think anything that creates this kind of chink where people suddenly realise they have the power to actually collectively make something happen is so exciting and the more we see it the more i think people are emboldened and encouraged by that Mm. possibility well we're going to have to finish up soon jack um you as part of the commemoration in 1916 you sang in the gpo yes i was very lucky on the good friday of the weekend to sing at the opening of uh, the new museum that's open in gpo that everybody should visit it's pretty spectacular but yeah it was a great pleasure to actually sing in in the post office i Mm. got to sing the foggy jew which was kind of you know you you felt like you were you know you you were there (laughs) you know what i do normally is quite you know musically is a kind of a global thing so it was nice to do something specifically irish well, it sounds to me like that would be the perfect way to finish up this um, program uh, with the Foggy Jew from Jack Lukeman. Uh, so um, give him a minute to get settled there. Twas down the City fair, Rhode Island. Where armed lines of marching men 
squadrons passed me by No fife did hum No battle drum did sound It's loud, sad, so Thank you, Jack, and for bringing us to our close there. And thanks to all of my guests, Elephant Simons, Jack Lupin, Dilvika Masinghe, Owen Foray, and Porrick Dempsey. And of course, you, the audience, for making it happen. Join me next week when podcaster Jarlis Regan, human rights lawyer, 
Simone George and composer Michael Gallen will be amongst the guests in my parlour. And of course you can follow us online, catch the podcast on rte.ie and do talk back to us on social media using the hashtag Pantisocracy. Of course you can find me on Twitter at PantyBlitz. Pantisocracy is an Athena Media production for RTE Radio 1. Thank you for listening.